Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. If you're new here, I want to thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That's your time. So welcome. Today's entrepreneur has a penchant for skating to where the puck is going, as you'll hear in today's discussion. Everett Brewer is CEO of storage player Stores Power, and he's also co-owner of the solar project matching platform WattHub. From running a crew of 3,300 people at the tender age of 21 to dominating the door-to-door alarm business, his noteworthy solar journey has seen him navigate successful stints at Sun Edison and Evolve Solar before deciding to develop nano-printed lithium for OEM applications. Not quite sure what that means? Well, you're in the right place. We'll learn the secrets of Everett's versatility and peak performance and what the heck nano-printed lithium means in today's episode of Suncast. I hope you're subscribed to the show because that'll make sure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. And if you go to mysuncast.com, not only can you subscribe to our newsletter where we update you every single time we do publish a show, that's where you can check out the over 500 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice we've been pumping out since 2016. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, if you're in the residential and in some areas, in particular, getting deep into the energy storage sector of the business, you'll recognize today's guest. And if you are at all interested in how entrepreneurship works in general and learning from folks that are pushing the limits of what is possible in our industry, then you're definitely in the right place. Today's guest Everett Brewer is uh, one of those folks who has been recommended to me by multiple folks and who I've wanted to meet and get to know a little better. And we get the chance to do that today. Thanks for joining Suncast, Everett. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Look forward to, to getting to know you guys more and see how we can share some love around this industry. Yeah, man. You've got a fun story and I look forward to digging in and asking some questions around kind of the things that you can't not do, the things that you're compelled to see live in the world from building out networks to move the needle on the industry to building actual physical products. You seem to be a jack of all trades and in particular really driven to, to build businesses. I'd love to know if there's anything that you reflect on from your childhood that was a moment or a time period that particularly instilled in you that entrepreneurial spirit. Where'd that come from? You know, I, I think it was just more or less an observation of my family. You know, a small town, uh, not a whole lot of opportunities. So if you wanted to have a way to keep food on the table, you had to go create your own opportunity. So also, too, is there's always that keeping up with the Joneses. And and sometimes, you know, we weren't always the most wealthiest family in the neighborhood. So when I even wanted the simple things of that new bike or 
you know, the latest trend of, you know, I'll go back to the day and kind of date myself back to the Jinko jeans. You know, at the end of the day, you actually had to go work for them. And uh, I found ways from, you know, mowing lawns and fixing lawn mowers all the way up just because I knew if I needed to do it, I had to do it myself. I can't sit around and wait for it. So multiple ways to, on observation, that's kind of my biggest way to learn. Who or what were some of the earlier influences in your life that really showed you that doing it yourself, working for yourself and entrepreneurship was a path that you knew was sort of inevitable in your life? Yeah, I think I think the word entrepreneur uh, really came into focus where I actually understood the word it was actually probably in my mid-teens. You know, it wasn't a real well-known word in that case, but I had no idea that that's what I was preparing for. You know, the biggest influence that I had was actually my dad and my dad's dad that have always been in some way, shape or form, a business owner and creating opportunity. And so just seeing ways to where being an entrepreneur is one thing is, is, is not always the fact of starting something, you know, having a great idea. It's actually fulfilling on it. When, when money literally comes down to the execution of, like I said, keeping food on your table, there's a little bit different nuance to the approach or reason, you know, you always hear a man will do something for, for his wife more than, or for somebody else more than he'll do for himself. And I actually saw that selfless approach, whether it was us going out and cutting logs. And, you know, my, my grandpa was a log cutter. My dad grew up as a log cutter and doing that kind of backpacking, breaking work, and then coming home with that load of wood that typically is there to, you know, keep your own home warm. And then someone comes down and needs it more than you, they'll literally give away that entire load of wood. So it was a it was a different approach to where it was it was working for a, a greater good and for a, more than just yourself that actually gave you the motivation. And I learned that early on. You know, when when people say you're a business owner, it just means I work for everybody else. Uh, I, I, they don't work for me. And there's actually a passion for people that need to be assigned with that entrepreneurial role. In my opinion, learned that super early on with family. Yeah. We share that we both grew up in hardworking families, blue collar and very small towns. How big was the high school you attended? Uh, I think we were barely trending on a 3A school amongst four towns. So, uh, you know, it can kind of give you that leverage of, of size and, and four towns. You literally can drive through them, you know, in a few miles, uh, they all interconnected. Even, even one I was kind of make a joke of, um, it's literally about 600 feet wide when you drive through it and it's called belly button. So no it's way. a real place called, called Belly Button, Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called Belly Button, Arizona. Population, I think there's like 60 and it's just one big sliver. So that kind of just tells you how small the town was, um, but loved it. Grew up hard, always was dirty and uh, had a great time. So that's funny. <laughs> Were you the kind of person in high school that always jumped in to all the competitions and the sports and things like that? And you were drawn to like that level of competition at a young age? Yeah, sports were the big things for me from Little League. You know, baseball was my thing. You know, I was, always enjoyed playing basketball. It wasn't really my, my aspect. But yeah, the competitive aspect of baseball was my what I actually loved. I was a pitcher, and if I didn't have a ball in my hand, I, that means I was working. And then I came home and picked up the ball again. So the competitive aspect of sports, and, and that's something that I've definitely always enjoyed. Yeah. You know, something that surprises me and probably others about you and it's just a sign of kind of how we culturally have these norms and expectations around folks is that you actually didn't finish what we might consider to be formal high school or like the, the normal education track. Can you talk a bit about the different path you took in your teens that led to the formation of kind of how you think about business and life. 
I had a unique opportunity and I look at it as an opportunity, not a detriment to where I'll start off with the sad part of it. My little brother was, was diagnosed with, with cancer at age 10 years old. He had uh, cancer cells glaze all the way up and down his spine and, and, and two very large tumors. So at a young age, um, I also had just blew my knee out playing baseball, which was a detriment to that career. So obviously, you know, the, the man upstairs probably had a different path for me at that point. And obviously I learned that real quick and fast. So I'd missed a lot of school with helping the family because my parents ran family businesses. Literally, that was the life bread of our family, making sure that my folks could actually focus on medical approaches with my brother, um, which ultimately saved his life. And he's now here with us today, which I, I love and appreciate. And so putting my head down and going to work and understanding there was a bigger purpose of why I was going to work every day was more important. And so but also, too, is I still kind of wanted to have that that understanding of schooling and have something in my hand. And so I simply sat down with my, my parents and said, hey, can I just go get my GED? I want to at least get through that. I tried to go through a charter school where I tried to go through an accelerated program. But again, I was just so busy with uh, maintaining opportunities here. I was waking up at, at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and loading trucks for the drivers. And then the drivers got out, out to route. And I would go to school and come back, take care of my, my brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest of, of eight, technically. And so uh, kind of having the oldest is, is always the fun part. And then I'd come home, unload trucks again, make sure everybody had dinner. And, uh, and I was back to, you know, not so much playtime in that case. I was mostly just work, not play. Yeah. How old were you roughly when, when this happened? About 15, 15, 16 through Goodness. those, those two years. So 15, 16 grew up real quick and, and just had the opportunity to put my nose to the ground and learn a lot and got my GD, got that past that point and, and literally just kept on the grind ever since. So something I actually overall enjoyed. I've always been in the people business as I've always stated. And, and ultimately that's how you grow a company in general is providing a service and having the end customer involved. And sometimes that's your own family behind, behind the business. What a story. I'm glad to, I'm, I'm glad that there is a happy ending to across the board. Your, your brother's alive and well today, as is the entrepreneurial spirit that your dad imbued and your grandfather imbued in you all those years that, uh, you know, I've never met anyone who looked at life that early and approached it from that sort of time hack to say, how can I accomplish the same objective, which is this educational milestone that the world is going to want to use to validate me without having to sacrifice all the time that the school system requires or says that is required. I didn't even know that you could take your GED to skip high school. That is amazing. Yeah, it's not recommended. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, sure definitely, not. there's definitely a cost to that education. Um, you know, there's always the, the, the joke is that you see the yearbooks later on and you see a photo of Everett Brewer in there and, you know, where did that kid go? Whatever happened to him? Right. Those years are fun and I'm glad I'm able to provide those years for my kids. So yeah, for sure. For sure. And let's be honest, nobody looks at their yearbooks anymore. And those that do are just uh, living (laughs) in the past anyway. And we don't really associate much with them. I can't (laughs) remember. I don't even know where my yearbooks are, to be honest. I actually don't either. (laughs) It begs the question, uh, what career path? I think I probably know the answer. What career path did you not go down, but I always thought that you would. Honestly, I I thought I was going to go play baseball. Pro ball. I grew okay. up in a, and yeah, straight to the majors. I actually had influence where my cousin went and played for the Braves. My buddy went and played for the Cubs. My other buddy went and played for the Athletics. So we had a really good the core group and, and it was definitely a sport. Yeah. And, and I, I just had a really good uh, mentorship around that and great coaches and great opportunity. And 
And unfortunately, like I said, uh, somebody had a different path for me. So, but yeah, that's where I thought I was going to play and stay. What do you use now in your business building culture that you knowingly borrowed from the sports industry or that coaching mentoring facility that was afforded you early in life? You know, I, I think someone always have to have their why. You know, that's the number one thing that I've found is, is that why do you even go to work every day in general? You know, even for what we would consider as the everyday job to more of the different approach of jobs from different skill sets and, and crafts out there. But really, why are you going to work? Is it a passion for the work itself? Or are you a guy that works to live or live to work? The other component of that is, is that, is that why achievable? Sometimes you have to, you know, through the mentorship component of, of some of these approaches here, is it too low or is it too high? And that way you can actually account for small victories along the way. Those victories can be daily small uh, or they can be large and instrumental. And, and I always kind of component, uh, kind of go to the point of early career. I, I used to build homes uh, with a, a neighbor that owned a, a home construction company and, I learned to actually have uh, an understanding and appreciation for looking back and seeing something that you built. And so having the ability to actually go back to someone and say, hey, combined or independently, this is what you've done and here's the praise for that. And the reason you did that was obviously it was a task on, on your role and responsibility of the company, but then you can actually yield fruit for some of the over, uh, you know, the other internal you know, goals and aspirations you may have, whether that's that car, that trip, that family, getting ready for a baby delivery, whatever it may be. I think that's just the biggest component to it because then you can actually account for longevity. Um, it's not just a sprint. It's actually a, a journey in that case. And, and you can make sure you see small victories along the way to keep the wind in the sails. Ever, I was going to ask about your journey into the construction industry, because at the end of the day, most of our industry in solar is not like any other, or it's, it's very similar to all other construction in nature. How did you get into the kinds of construction projects that you uh, have, I'll say, become known for early in your career, like by the age of 21, working on huge construction projects with large crews that, that were under your responsibility? You know, the construction industry kind of helped really early. Like I was saying, is I had a neighbor that owned a home construction company and needed work during the summers. And so I'd actually go build homes for them out on the Indian reservations and out in the middle of nowhere. And and, you know, learn to build something and use your hands and, and get dirty through that. Then that experience then uh, pushed me over to the railroad industry where we used to load lo uh, train cars and uh, we load those train cars and watch them go all the way up. And, and they literally would go from Arizona to New York and uh, Arizona to Florida and, and transport that in those details. And I was actually loading from the logging industry in northern northeastern Arizona, a little town called Taylor, Arizona. We got a big you know, forestry type uh, industry there. there's a big paper mill that used to be there. And so that was that work. From there, I then in turn ended up getting found by a road construction company that then in turn turning into a commercial and industrial uh, uh, company because I, I love to run heavy equipment. I actually ended up getting a knack for it to where uh, some of the young, some of the older guys didn't really like that. Quick story at the job where we were building fabrication buildings for Intel and Motorola on the Intel site. We're on project, 21 years old. I'm probably the lower 6% of the entire crew, including 3,300 people, including all crafts. And in front of them, making sure they're accounting for their safety mechanisms and, and all these things. 
And there's a gentleman that was older that had just as much as opportunity as I had. He's probably in his sixties. Unfortunately, he was still in the ditches. And that's one thing he didn't like. And he's like, Hey, I'm not taking any kind of direction from you. I'm older than you and I know better. And he actually grabbed my head and threw it in the side of the pickup. And there's actually a dent in the side of the truck. And uh, the guys that actually appreciated me getting back up and shaking his hand and say, what can I do to help you? He actually had me sign it and we put a polymer paint over the top of it to show that was my hazing getting in the industry, I guess. So, so that was some of the, the fun things getting into the space and understanding is age is not the opportunity. It's actually the drive. So, so that was my history getting into construction and running heavy equipment. Got an award for being the youngest superintendent in the four corner states on that job that year. Wow. That's really cool. So it seems like if I were to try a follow a path of career for you, it would have been growing in some uh, one of these huge companies and ultimately being a supervisor and a manager of crews, making really good money, building large buildings. At what point did your story diverge from that, that heavy industrial construction narrative? I remember the day I had an aha moment on site. It was 2006. It was in February. I'm in a company truck. I've got paid insurance. I've got a great salary and I'm good at what I do. And at that point, you know, in my life, I was, you know, going to having drinks with the guys after work and, and uh, just kind of being in this environment to where I just didn't really know where the ethics were and the integrity was. And I remember looking across the job site and I'm looking at the same guy. Uh, you know, a couple guys sitting in their trucks doing their paperwork that are in their 50s and 60 years old in the same position I am at age 21 and realizing that's what I get to grow up to be. Mm. And I, I just kind of sat back. It's like, that's not the path that I'm on here. You know, there has to be something bigger, better, some more knowledge that I can gain along the way. And at the end of that work day, I actually put in my two week notice. No way. And so I said, no, I need to find another path. And through that, I took some leave. I actually had another knee surgery, went back to, and, and spent some time with some family, had some money put back. And I get a phone call from an old friend that says, hey, I've got this opportunity. And that actually got me in the alarm industry, knocking, knocking doors. So totally different swap. I would have never thought, right? And this is like circa 2006, I think, if I recall, right? Yeah, 2006. And wow. next thing I know, I'm out doing summer sales. So ended up having a knack for it. I think just came in down to the fact is, is that building the small business with my family you know, it really came down to the people and, and providing a service and that people business approach. And so I ended up creating quite a bit of relationships and uh, had a lot of success in that industry and, and ran, went through that through, through 2009. So decided to pivot from there. Just simply, there was some ethics there that I didn't really align with there as well. So, yeah, it seems like you've got a real sensitivity for when ethics and integrity don't align. And we talked uh, before in another conversation about the, just the level of integrity that you learn living in a small town where everyone knows your name and where you have family businesses and people rely on people. Tell me a bit about how all that eventually drew you in. I mean, anyone who's been watching the solar industry would certainly understand the connection and even more so in the sort of Utah, Arizona corridor between alarm systems and solar. But why don't you tell me when you first got exposed to the idea that the solar power industry was starting to take off and that might be an area that you'd want to focus? Yeah, I actually had no clue that I'd be doing this for a living. From 2009 on, I actually started doing consulting. And through doing consulting, I, I actually worked for a number of different companies, different industries. What were you consulting on? 
really from efficiency of their operations, efficiency of their sales, making sure systems, tools, and technology were all married up together so that way they could actually have data and be able to make decisions on their business on, on their behalf. And I mean, it doesn't matter the industry because those are key principles in any mainstay business. So that's where I ended up having success. And then I ended up getting a phone call from a good buddy of mine and says, hey, I'm working with this solar company. And we're having some challenges with some processes and procedures and got on the phone with the owner. And I think the same week I was on a plane from Arizona to Salt Lake and and met with those guys. And uh, within a few days, helped them with some, some processes and, and some updates there. And they asked me to come on board. And next thing you know, I'm running my home in Arizona to sales guys that we had, that Suncat company had in Arizona, and I was moved here. And so I had no clue. In, in essence, the industry found me. <laughs> and then uh, and then I've, I've obviously continued in it. Well, sort of tracking the timeline, you were at Evolve and then Sun Edison and Legacy. I have to assume that from Evolve, you were brought in by the Vivint guys as they were pulled into Sun Edison. Yeah, so we we got in. I got in early with with Evolve uh, twelve and thirteen, and then we had the opportunity with Sun Edison later on, where there was an acquisition. Unfortunately, that back acquisition actually fell apart. You guys probably know the stories. You know, once the Vivint announcement happened, and then from there, it kind of started deteriorating the the uh, investor confidence. Stocks started dropping. Everybody dropped. Sunrun, Vivint, Nextera, everybody. And so it was an interesting, interesting dynamic. And so I, I picked up the pieces and, and found homes for a lot of our guys over at Legacy. And, and they did right by those folks at that point and just kind of helped them with that transition. Ultimately, what attracted you to the solar industry such that you decided to spend now a decade of your career focused on helping instill processes, procedures, recruitment, uh, protocol to grow the solar industry so that it's a duplicatable product. What, what attracted you to this industry? Why have you stuck around? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would probably contribute to the fact is when I first got in the solar industry, within the first, first off, it was just a job, right? I was taking my current skills of knowing how to knock doors and, and run an operational uh, healthy business where I was actually approached by a group that just so happened to acquire through a roundabout way, the patents to nano printed lithium battery technology. Um, a guy knew a guy that knew me that said, Hey, this, this is Everett. He's, he's our solar guy. And so knowing that I'm in the solar industry and, and currently the guys that hold held the patents were not in the solar industry, had no idea what to do with the technology. It then kind of pioneered me to where I started doing research in that space, realizing the opportunity, understanding the platform that I had in front of me, and ultimately the solar industry as a whole. You know, at that point, uh, Evolve Solar was the exclusive indirect sales channel for Solar for uh, Solar City, and mm. so a lot of opportunities to where that product had the ability to mature and where the industry was going. That battery saturation could be something one day, uh, mm. and then soon to see. You know, you see start Tesla starts obviously putting it more at a commercial level. And then you start seeing more companies coming from there. So ultimately, I think it was the technology that was being pioneered behind it. That was the geek out point that kept me moving, that I was then creating a pathway or proof of concept through the day-to-day job of knowing where its applications needed to be at the utility level, at the infrastructure level, and at the homeowner level, the business level. So um, I think I just saw the end results uh, potential of the technology as a whole that got me heavily involved. Got you hooked. 
And there's still yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of technological innovation left to be had for sure. Tell me something, Everett, that's that's true for you that maybe a few people agree with you on. How do you see the world through a different lens than your peers? That's a hard one. Um, <laughs> without trying to be controversial in some way, well, you're going to be um, controversial. That's the point of the question. <laughs> yeah, that's the point of the question, right? Uh, try to keep a little neutral as we can. You know, I I just have a thinking that's a little bit different to where. Again, I, I kind of refrain back to the, the individual, the, the person that a lot of these guys try to build businesses to build a company that look at the dollar signs and those are, those are end results. Those are, those are a byproduct. And unfortunately, a lot of the consulting that I've done over the years that I've learned that's been controversial is, is that sometimes you are addressing the symptom with that individual. And that symptom is typically the reason that you want to part ways. Uh, typically a reason why you're needing to change management or change that employee or change the path of your business in cases. Some cases, it literally goes to the extent of, of moving an entire industry's focus or entire company's focus. And being the kind of consulting role that I've had where I've been in that change agent type approach, some folks don't want to take that extra five, six minutes just before you go and pull the trigger to see what actually is going on with the person because you first hired the person. And then the second, the second thing you hired was the experience. And then the third thing you hired was their motivation within your organization because you have to have overall alignment. And I think the misalignment that I've seen in more companies than not is they're not looking at the person. And that's been hard to kind of uh, observe. And granted, sometimes the person's just, you know, they, they've made some decisions and, and, you know, you part ways. Not everybody can be aligned in that case. But that's probably some of the most controversial aspect of because they look at the focus of the business and time is money. And, you know, you just put all this real estate at this individual to run that, run that time, which you put a lot of time on that individual in that role of responsibility. And you're about to let it go. And so some people don't want to waste that time as well. This, I've, I've seen that response more times than not. It's just like, yeah, it's just waste time. We're just going to move on and, and be done. Instead of actually just taking five, six minutes and actually seeing that could be a symptom of your own company that could be just continually be repeated. Mm. See, that last, that last uh, addition to the sentence there is really core because it's true, hire slow, fire fast, trust your gut. But you have to ask as the entrepreneur, as the owner, even if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're just a, man, a line manager with reporting, people reporting to you, if someone on your team is not performing, it is a failure of management. It's rare that it's a failure of that person because most people don't want to be slackers. They want to contribute. They want to feel <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, like I mean, there are certain categories of people, but you probably didn't hire the kind of person that just inherently is a slacker. So you have to ask yourself the question, what's broken in our business that is, that is leaving potential undeveloped in this human being. That's a really yeah, great point. It's controversial. Yeah. It nobody wants to look sure. internally and nobody, nobody wants to look internally and not a lot of people want to commit the time to actually make that level of review. So true. You know, there are many challenges to starting a business and, and being a business owner with respect to the businesses you've started in general, but in this industry, is there any particular area that you've found Within the residential solar industry or within maybe the technology side of this business, like what are the, the one or two areas of headache, as it were, or the one or two uh, stumbling blocks that not only you, but you routinely see others challenged with this area of, of building a business? 
typically building a business comes around some level of innovation, right? Someone said, hey, I can do it better. And so they took, you know, one core industry in that case, and they want to take it to to doing it on their own. That was my path. So the innovation, usually the biggest uh, killer of innovation is actually policy, which I appreciate on one side of the fence because it keeps people happy, healthy, safe, which are, are key components of any actually approach, especially in the battery industry, right? We talk about a volatile substance in essence as a standalone product that can, if not in the right environment and, and management and oversight can actually become, you know, can cost somebody's life. But policy and certifications are the killer of it because, you know, I'm going to go in and be controversial again. You know, there is many a time where we have an opportunity to actually change the industry and improve it. And I've seen other folks in the same role but because of the financial requirements to actually achieve that level of, of certification for testing and, and those kind of things, those industries and companies are so wide that that dollar amount is significant. And because they can't achieve that significance on that dollar amount or commitment of time or delay of product launch, which obviously impacts your income in that case, what in turn happens is, is that they get choked out. Or you end up seeing that traditional story where we see a, literally a graveyard here in Utah and Northern California where they're having to go over leverage their equity. That's the only asset they may have is equity on this idea. And so they make the decision of like, hey, I need to go grow equity. So I'm going to go give a part, part of my company away. And then you think you're on this path. And next thing you know, there's the next certification or the next requirement that comes through their compliance. It comes through and they're ready to drain your business again. And the change in that happens so quick, which in in a lot of ways are in our favor because it keeps a lot of the really bad products out of the market. But there's a major challenge as far as how we can get that adopted in a more efficient way because overall, the testing is actually simple. usually happens in in less than 30 days, and at least in our industry. And then beyond that, it's just paperwork. And I've been on many a phone call where there's 15, 16 people on a phone call and every single one of them ends up just being them fighting amongst themselves because this guy didn't do that and that guy doesn't that. And I'm like, I'm literally paying you by the hour for you guys to figure out your business. And it just costs us through the nose. So there's a lot of inefficiencies in that place. And that's actually what I think is the biggest challenge in our technical space from software and hardware that is killing innovation and the opportunity to grow. Well, let's talk a bit about what you're doing differently because we've highlighted a bit of the technical area you mentioned early on that or earlier that you were approached by a patent holder for nano printed lithium first tell me what that means yeah uh, not to get too far in the deep end there but uh, it was just about the control of placement of printing lithium or organic material onto substrates that in that case it had an efficient path for electricity to move up and down uh, throughout a battery cell in in essence. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there were some bad decisions on some other products that were non-related that people started relating it back to us, which are totally not even an issue. And because of somebody else's mistake, we actually retired the technology because we were getting labeled misinformally. Ah, okay. Misinformed information on that. So we actually moved over to lithium iron phosphate on the chemistry side. To LFP, which is now, as we know, has become sort of the the standard form factor. It wasn't wasn't always a foregone conclusion that LFP would be the standard storage form factor for residential and, and increasingly for utility scale as well. The safety alone was the biggest focus for that. Yeah. Why do you see the need for 
you know, when I meet a new, uh, a, a CEO of a new storage company, often I'll ask why I feel like the storage industry, like the EV industry is like the automobile industry of the twenties and thirties. There are a thousand and one day there will be five. So <laughs> yeah. why is stores, why do stores need to live and, uh, and why will they survive others in the industry? You know, I, I think where our, our approach is a little bit different and why we will continually survive and thrive is because the hardware component of, of the industry, look at the actual battery itself or the inverter itself, just the main staple, main major uh, items in the hardware set. Those are innovating, but really at a slower pace. And they always are, right? Everybody mm-hmm. has re- the, the rebuttal back from the homeowner that says, well, why would I buy these solar panels today when next year, you know, it's going to be 50% better. If you really look at the efficiency of a panel, it's really been changing at tenths of a percent in, you know, three and four year stints. Ultimately, the battery industry has been doing similar in that case. So where our focus is, is that we're actually a technology and software company that just so happens that we manufacture batteries along the way. Mm-hmm. And so the technology and software actually enables additional efficiency and also be able to stay current in whatever format may happen. So here's an example for, for this. So call it six years ago when the utility companies wanted to leverage a battery on their grid, they would make a phone call. And that phone call was to the lineman that sat on the job until he waited for his job and sent over there and literally would pull a lever. Now it's gone to the point to where now it's a radio call. And now it's changed to a call that can happen literally through the electrical wire right through the, the utility grid. Yeah. And so that change in how that call is made to deploy that battery storage at utility level, that's actually software innovation there. Yep. And we actually have utilities are still literally on the pull the lever calls. And then some utilities matured to they can push a button on a laptop or a computer and they can make the call. We have to stay dynamic because we participate in all three. And so that software component and always staying current will continually take that product that was still installed five, six years ago, keep it current for how the utility is uh, communicating with their own assets on the grid. Same thing we do home-wise. Uh, residentially, we're seeing a lot more utility-based programs based around homeowners putting batteries in where they can actually participate in grid programs for revenue or demand support or time of use support. And so that software keeps us innovative and always connected and and current. No difference than that Tesla across the air can do those over-the-air updates. We can do the same. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. So it sounds like you're building, and I know that AI is a big piece of the, of the algorithm, the software that you are, that you're working on, but it sounds like you're building software that allows, I don't know if it's homeowners that own the asset or the utility that owns the asset, but to be able to deploy these distributed energy resources, DERS, through different revenue models at different utilities. Is that, I mean, that's very vague explanation i'm asking i'm i'm asking for you to clarify my understanding around that because i don't understand the business model of stores beyond 
being a competitor to Tesla and, and SunGrow and Simplify and all the other uh, you know, storage manufacturers? Yeah, for sure. So the competitive aspect of it is that uh, you're correct in how homeowners can participate in those programs. Business owners participate in those programs for the utility. And there is revenue shares in those cases, right? Utility is a nonprofit organization 99% of the time. So when they actually go pay for a battery themselves, they have to bring a third party in. Well, if a homeowner goes and actually pays for that asset at the home for their own personal reasons and use for electric bill savings, number one focus, and obviously batteries are the participation in the case of emergency response. As a third party benefit, they actually say, hey, I have no CapEx experience on the initial adoption of that, that equipment on my grid. Now I can actually use it by just paying them as I need it. That's a huge piece. And there's a lot of battery companies that are focusing there. But we've seen a lot of battery companies that are actually staying behind. And the reason being is because the battery itself is only one component. What actually happens on the connected tissue is actually at the inverter level and the controller level. So if you're just a battery company, you actually depend on two other components. Or in our case, we actually can bring all three of those components online in real time and we can integrate any player. So we're hardware agnostic and protocol agnostic. And the other competitive approach to that is, is that a lot of folks look at, hey, the only way I can play and can participate on reducing energy consumption at the home or participate in reducing energy consumption on the grid is buying this big, bad battery. Now, this is going to be uh, a little bit interesting uh, comment by me as a battery manufacturer. We actually don't all need batteries in every application. Because if we can mechanically manage the energy at the home, thermostats, occupancy, lighting, refrigeration, you know, how, when and where our homes actually operate some of those bigger loads, we can actually contribute almost as much as a 10 kilowatt hour battery. So in that case, we've literally seen data, which we've already, we're already doing, where we are mechanically controlling the management of the home and the business, and we're doing the same and adding a little bit of a battery in there in two. So what happens is one plus one equals three. And uh, we're seeing a lot more impact on the overall energy crisis issues we're having. Summer is around the corner. And we're all going to start getting the emails and news outlets stating is this grid's out of power and this grid's out of power. Rolling brownouts, rolling blackouts, fires, because failed equipment. And uh, we literally can bring the software component to real-time management, but never change the comfort of your home. So who's the client in this case? Ultimately, the end beneficiary is the homeowner or the business. And the third part, the second part, party beneficiary is actually the utility if they decide to participate. Yeah, but the utility is not mandating that a homeowner use stores power, for example, nor that a homeowner participate at all. So if the homeowner is the, is the, is the client, then you are able to come to help that homeowner. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out like how do stores get engaged with the end customer, the client in a way that is unique or, or value add. Cause you're, you're not a, you, you're not a solar installer. You're a hardware manufacturer, but you're not trying to compete in the same way that say, you know, a Yada energy is where they're maybe developing projects and selling directly to installers, or perhaps you are just trying to figure out like, where is it that the industry would look to stores and say, Oh, okay, we, we need stores for this particular need. And also I'm curious who else is trying to serve that need, right? Like what the competition looks like in that sector. Yeah. So if we just take it down to the simplest approach, so we have over 3000 certified partners that purchase our products every day and install it for their homeowners. The store's battery. 
the storage battery system. Yep. So they're they're focusing on the storage power inverter and batteries, and then the installer procures the the racking and and the and the modules and ultimately the labor and local compliance installation requirements. And so the initial competitive analysis on why the storage power industry or, or in company is growing is because the performance of the battery. So initially, folks are looking for a battery because they look for backup, right? You know, Florida with some of the issues, you also have utilities fighting back to where, like in Tennessee, there's no net metering at all. So you have to look at self-consumption. Florida was on the docket to lose their net metering, and they, they obviously, you know, extended that last month, where that's now back available for clients. Uh, you got srp in arizona that just changed their time of use program where it's a heck of a lot more expensive from 4 to 8 p.m they're starting to adopt that high cost energy thresholds like california uh, california in some markets stg e is 64 cents a kilowatt hour from 4 to 9 p.m so that's the initial benefit and because stores power has such a high charge and discharge rate you know the story we always say is we can provide more continuous power than two tesla power walls but we install 22 percent cheaper than one that's a huge financial benefit for the customer because our batteries can charge and discharge so high. And then we have the ability to support more load with a smaller system. So the motto at stores is build a smarter battery, not a bigger battery. And we do that because software enables those features. So in a world where integrators are trying to figure out, do I need a span smart panel? Do I need to find somebody that does this software layer, right? Because the battery energy storage system like the Bez, that is a layer apart from the battery itself or the inverter, which is where the innovation is happening right now in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, who, who else is playing in that market? Like, are you competing with Span and Lumen and some of these smart panel companies? Yeah. So we, we actually integrate with those products. And the reason we do that is because for one, those innovations are not necessarily competitive nature to our market. It actually contributes to what our overall model is, is building a smarter system. And so the placement of Lumen or Span is simply comes down to energy management and peak management. So a quick example would be is, is that if uh, the average home in America, their average peak usage is around uh, 14 to 15 kilowatts. Well, if you look at an everyday battery from like a Tesla or an Enphase or an LG product, you're only going to get anywhere from 3.84 kilowatts to 5 kilowatts of output continuous with a 7 kilowatt peak at the highest. So what do you have to do? You have to go buy two, three Tesla power walls, which creates this huge barrier of entry price-wise for a consumer. And so that's where the energy management piece I'm actually fully supportive of is to where you can reduce that peak down to, in our application, we, we average around nine kilowatts is what we reduce that 15K down to nine. And then the store's power product can actually charge and discharge at 12. So we only need one system where you'd still need two from Tesla. But the energy management is actually a key component. We're actually taking it further to where we're integrating with all the IoT players. So the smart thermostats, the smart lighting controls, your smart vents, all of those different components for the fact is we have additional layers of management without challenging going and flipping the entire breaker off like a lumen and span would be. Uh, Nobody likes seeing the blinking lights on the microwave every other day because you're constantly turning the thing on and off. And so we actually... We actually want more players to actually approach us in those in those areas. We can integrate it, put it on the same platform, include the same user experience, but then we'll lay our AI in there because we actually grab user and consumer profiles and we start having this learning algorithm over time to where we know when, why, and where to do that management within those products. And it brings more value to the end consumer. The thing that fascinates me about you is not that you're the uh, the CEO of stores, but that you are 
a C-suite executive of not one, but two companies in the industry. Most of us have a hard time holding down one gig. Would you tell me a little about WattHub and how that came about? Yeah, WattHub was actually a byproduct of me needing a place for some commercial projects one day. So at the time, back in 12 and 13, uh, SolarCity and Evolve were not focused on commercial whatsoever. And uh, came across a couple guys down in Arizona. And uh, we actually started executing on some commercial projects after them understanding me and, and some of the things that I like to focus on. Uh, eventually became partners and what we see it as today. So we strictly focus on commercial industrial utility scale projects. Really, it comes down to we have a really healthy team here that's able to really manage that. Where, uh, you know, in our case, I'm not having to, you know, I can run two companies. And what is the, what's the core product of WattHub for those who are unfamiliar? Yeah, the core product of WattHub is, is, uh, is really, we have the ability to take a commercial project from A to Z which there's a major gap in the industry as a whole. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We have 3,600 channel partners now. So these channel partners leverage us for our commercial expertise. And a majority of those, I'd probably say in the 90th percentile, are residential solar companies that focus on residential because the transaction periods of those are really, really quick. And commercial is obviously a whole different beast on timeline. Um, we've got a project right now that's just hit a four-year mark. So uh, welcome to commercial. I tell people all the time, especially sales guys, like you see the potential commissions, but it is a totally different beast. It really is. And so we end up being a partner in approaching those clients to where we're either the entire customer facing approach or a very small amount of our, our channel partners are customer facing where they have that expertise and development understanding. So that's how we approach the market as a whole. I guess it's interesting because to hear you, the chief operating officer, explain it. It's slightly different than what it says on the WhatHub Hub page and on your LinkedIn page, it says it's a renewable energy exchange to find green friendly contractors to fulfill projects uh, or list a company for people to find you, which makes it sound like a green friendly contractor yellow pages to the uninitiated, right? So yeah. I'm wondering if there is a bigger product than what you just described. Yeah. So what that comes down to is it's actually all encompassing. We call ourselves an exchange for the fact is, is that we have a huge network of the manufacturers. We also have the huge network of installers, all the procurement, uh, engineering, development, financing, all the above. We're kind of that central connective tissue, right? But that's a holistic approach to where it really comes down to what the education of the original company approaching us is where are they educated to the point where they're mature, they have a fully developed project because it has... EPC prices, the fulfillment costs, what their PPA, SSA, true lease, off lease, you know, all the different loan mechanisms and, and results are looking for. And in that case, they can actually list those projects for contractors to bid on against each other. So that way they can get not only the fact of it's not always a price war, it's also based off statement qualifications and making sure they have the ability to execute on the actual project, right? We actually came into the latest platform of WattHub in 2016, which we do need to update thinking that that was 80% of the audience and the other 20%, we'd, we'd provide more one-on-one -on -one services where we would be really hand-holding that. We clearly found it was a flip-flop. A lot of deals that were priced in residential pricing, wondering why they couldn't get financing to work, you know, trying to get EPCs to do stuff that like, oh yeah, I, I installed a couple homes, so I'm going to go ahead and pick up a two megawatt canopy project for parking structures. 
lot of misalignment. And so we're actually doing a facelift right now, more tailored to what the audience has been instead of what we thought it would be. As a father of three myself, who at times feel like I'm running multiple businesses, how do you do it? How, how do you structure your time and your day to think about running multiple businesses? You know, that's always a challenging one. I'm usually the guy that comes into work, goes to the office, comes home, has time with the family, and then goes back to work. A lot of our engineers are overseas. And so a lot of the stores power work actually happens at night from, you know, 10 to 2 and then uh, back to bed and then and pick it up all over again. So, yeah, I identify with the multiple shifts model of entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The shifts aspect's been helpful, especially the fact that I have overseas uh, engineering development in some toss, in some areas. So that's been in my favor. So I can still focus on some family. Yeah, I expected that you would say because of the earlier conversation focused around people that you hire good people, which I'm sure is also probably your answer. So I'll ask a follow-up question there around how do you think about building a team around you so that you actually can focus on your core competence or zone of genius? Like talk, talk about how you've built this operating team around you and, and uh, in a way that allows you to have more freedom. Yeah, usually you don't know what you don't know until you're in the, in the know. Uh, so we, what we've typically found is that as I start having a pain point where I start seeing myself falling short, that starts creating a category in itself. And luckily, they've got plenty of titles out there nowadays where we can actually go in and place that, place that ad or start doing some networking. I've been lucky to be surrounded in, in an area here in Utah where we've got a lot of great talent. I actually haven't hired anybody off of an ad in probably, I don't know, seven years. It's all been through referrals. I kind of wait till that that challenge exacerbates and gets beyond management. Um, I could be better at that than trying to be a little more forefront on that. Is there a skill set that you solve for when you're doing that interview to bring someone on your team, no matter if they're from bottle washer to CTO? Yeah, there definitely is a skill set there. What I've typically had is folks that were trying to think of an example that would be a little more profound here, but the reality of it is. Everybody that works at both of our companies were actively working somewhere else that wasn't necessarily looking for another job. And so that was a true testament of where their commitment was around that current career path and where they were finding success. And then there was enough interest over here based around the role and responsibility and to be able to really scale that. And I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a gal we, we hired. She's probably one of our listeners here. She was busy in her in, in her company and did a ton of different marketing and different uh, administrative roles. But really, her degree was in graphic design. Well, I was looking for someone in graphic design. And so now in her position, she was able to take what her true passion was, which has a history behind it, and apply in a role to where she could really go and grow it, where that was her main focus. And uh, she's done exceptional work ever since. And, and uh, you know, we contribute our website and our marketing materials and all of our content to that, where you finally saw somebody that was really misplaced in their original role and really able to take their true talent and passion, which I've been able to ask a lot of those questions in interviews as we got to know them and uh, really utilizing that skill set, which was exactly what we needed at the time. Everett, there's a lot of uh, similarity, a lot of difference between the different sectors of this industry, but... Ultimately, as we grow and spend as much time as you and I have a decade or more in this industry, you 
you you see as they say as, as the old saying it goes that success leaves clues and you can look to see one of the hallmarks of suncast is that we like to interview folks where success leaves clues because it's obvious that they're doing uh, impactful work who would you say has done it right so to speak who are the companies or individuals that you most admire right now in the industry you know, I, I think there's different sectors, right? It's it's the same approach to where everybody always asks me, who is your best baseball uh, team? Who's your favorite, right? But I actually never liked the team. I actually always liked the player. So I actually would, I had players all across all types of teams across the, across the industry. And so I think, you know, one thing that I would say is, you know, Elon, he's one heck of a marketer, right? He's able to be able to get people on board before a product even exists. The hype, the industry, the credibility behind that. That's a major piece. So I've actually really enjoyed watching him and how he account how he approaches that. And there's actually some things that we've actually done and mimicked that, and we've had great success for. You know how we look at pre-launches and how we look at marketing a product prior to um, before a launch without cannibalizing your existing business and your main core competencies because that's actually a pretty interesting balance we've seen fail really quickly. Um, some other other focuses that we've seen is is that we've seen some folks and I won't say their names that have been really strong in the public markets. And, you know, we, we get on a lot of quarterly reviews for their quarterlies on uh, companies that are publicly traded and how they're presenting the companies outside of reporting, but how they're physically messaging that information. And the companies that are very well people-centric, you can actually hear it in the response and how they're approaching it. It's a us and a we instead of an I. We've actually seen those companies thrive a heck of a lot more. And I, I can contest that to a couple of companies locally that I won't mention. Um, but we've seen a lot of really cool things that I've, I've looked up to in those areas. I would probably say the last one um, would be is, uh, <laughs> it gets me a little emotional, but it's actually my wife. So, and how she approaches um, our family. Uh, you got to think of this as, and the fact is that's a job in itself. And uh, keeping that unit together, uh, she she goes from uh, somebody that can never. You, when you're a parent, you're never on a schedule. You, know, you never know what the the next thing is around the corner. When you have a family, you, you never really have a schedule. So someone that can actually juggle multiple things at once and talk about an ultimate multitasker, um, they they uh, I believe the the women in our lives can actually uh, do a lot more than us men. Uh, wouldn't be wouldn't be who we are without them. So. Those are three main people that I've accounted for and, and look up to. I love that. Thank you for that. We often like to point to our successes, but I believe that we learn as much from failure as success. And I'm curious, uh, as we start to round to, towards home base, to use a baseball analogy for you, as we start to turn the corner towards home here, what advice would you have for fellow entrepreneurs who are in the throes of startup life? Maybe that's informed by some of the dead ends or, or uh, forks in the road that you've had to overcome? Man, that, that, that would be an hour conversation in itself. Um, That's fine. Maybe one day we'll have, uh, we'll have that in person. We, we might have that, that in person, but I would see some of the, the bigger mistakes that we've seen is, is we've had a multitude of companies want to approach us and do work with us. And then the companies right here in the mini Silicon slopes, as we call it here in Utah. And, Every great idea should be able to work underneath one person's steam and execution and bandwidth and sometimes the garage or basement level approach uh, budget. Um, I think there is a lot of misconception around to where, hey, the only way I can go 
launch this business is I've got to go leverage it right out of the gate. And like I, like I said, we, some, if you look back here in my backyard, there's literally a graveyard around some of that mindset to where it might take you two or three years. Uh, you, you know, this instant gratification demographic that sometimes we live in right now, unfortunately, just isn't realistic. Where I kind of talked about those, those uh, goals that someone might have, or they, you got to see what those small victories need to be in this progressive approach. But going and giving away uh, your company on an idea right now, and, and the way the capital markets are working right now, they're really, really scarce on how they're investing in the tech companies and, and hardware companies today. It's a totally different market from even 10 months ago in evaluations. And so that was probably the, the biggest thing that I've seen is uh, in failures around me that I've learned and seen the before and afters of, of that approach has been really a big eye opener, you know, as we've looked at the capital markets. And then, and then the failures in our case is we actually ended up being in that mindset at one point. Luckily, we retracted because there was a big slap in the face on an aha moment where someone was in similar boat and it actually failed. We actually got outside of our outside of our comfort zone and, and put us right back into where we need to be. So uh, organic growth is actually healthy in a lot of ways. And leveraging human equity instead of actual capital is sometimes your best route. So I know it's a more complicated and long-winded question, but the answer might not have to be uh, long at all. It sounds like you're saying that to date you have not gone out and raised capital and yet you're building effectively a hardware business. Yes, that's correct. I would say it's always been easy. My hat's off to you, my friend. How long is it? How long have you been, have you been running on um, basically the operation budget that you're able to generate plus whatever sort of founder capital you put in? We're almost at 11 years now. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm rooting for you at that point, man, to know that, to know that you've been able to last a decade under your own <laughs> weight and not collapse is, uh, I mean, that's like you said, proofs in the pudding. If you can operate it on a, on a one man garage budget, then it can scale. And, uh, yeah. and oftentimes if it, if you can't, then it can't. <laughs> What do you believe is the next huge problem that we need to solve in generally in the solar and clean energy sector? Like what's holding us back from the kind of success that we want to see for this industry? You know, I think it's just a balanced budget as a whole. You know, innovation costs money. People need to put food on the table, but we don't need to be so extreme about it to where people are bragging about paychecks on social media where in this case, the consumer market obviously ends up being the damaging end result. We're starting seeing a lot of the consumers fight back now. Uh, you know, social media is a huge platform, which then the media outlets pick in and they, they find the next big story. And we've seen a lot in the last 24 months um, around that to where people are coming in fat on projects on the residential market and they're not being balanced on their approach. They're running a business at a very big profit margin. And all of a sudden, if things change, they become very brittle. So we're seeing a lot of companies actually go out of business as of late because of that. And if any of those budgets need to go anywhere, um, I think we should have a better balanced approach on the install side. Really, that is a perfected craft, in my opinion. You know, you don't go have brain surgery with someone that is actually on a strict budget. What do you think the results are going to be, right? And so these red line, you know, arm wrestles that go on all the time are consistently a battle that puts the EPCs that have the biggest liability, the longest uh, liability because they're maintaining workmanship guarantees and performance and rollout trucks 
the insurances that are approached with those projects, they are really taking on that customer for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Where the sales guys, they need to have a little more skin in the game and have a better balanced approach. Yeah, they have no liability. No. And it takes a, it takes a skill to be a sales guy. I appreciate that. I think I'd like to have a separate private and then public conversation with you about this topic specifically. I almost wish I'd asked it earlier earlier, or we'd gotten into it earlier because this is my big hangup right now with the resi industry and the reason that I'm almost entirely uninvolved and uninterested in residential solar in the United States because there's an entire sector of, of, of that industry that essentially has the rest of the industry in a chokehold and we got to do something about it. Yep. I agree with you. I think that you're very diplomatic in the way that you're saying we need a balanced budget. And I know under the under the sheets what it is that you're referring to. And, you know, this whole red line economics doesn't work. It doesn't work. No. You don't see you. I, I remember the first time a, a guy who brought me on as a mentor and then coached his business talked to me about a red line. And I was aghast. I was just like, I was literally floored. I couldn't believe that in the six or so years since I had been sort of involved in the resi industry that these, um, these sales organizations had essentially taken hostage the ITC. Mm -hmm. That's ex explicitly what's happening. Like sales teams make the ITC, the homeowner doesn't get to see it. It literally exists uh, because it's the fat on the table and, uh, and it gets baked into more fat in the financing of the project. So we could go a, a long way down that rabbit hole, Everett, but I appreciate that you yeah. bring it up because it's a topic that needs to be discussed a lot more deeply. And I'm encouraged to hear candidly from someone who I know who has a lot of experience knocking doors, a lot of experience building sales teams to say, guys, the model right now is kind of upside down and we're hurting the homeowner. Cause that's what I heard you say. Yeah. That's what we're hurting the homeowner. We're hurting the industry as a whole. Like people are literally yeah. missing out on opportunities because the last guy, because the neighbor before that's to right. where it's given the industry as a whole is a black eye, right? And That's the right. accountability needs to be leveled off. And ultimately, we're preparing mm -hmm. for these ITC step downs, right? So how yeah. do we go around from building value to, you know, to go into a value-added approach instead of just the savings value approach? Because that can only happen with a balanced approach where people are running on operational cash flow that is real, that still needs to run their business, and they can still feed their families, but then be sustainable, you know? Our industry, particularly, we are ultimately the battery industry as a whole is a new product, right? It's a new space. And there is a capex associated with that where there's still an adoption. But yet, because there's so much fat on the bone in that case, you're literally taking away the right for someone to protect their home and their family and that barrier of entry for that to where it's now, we, we believe it's a right, not a privilege. You know, the car industry is finally balancing out a little bit to where you literally can buy a Kia now down the street that has more technology than the, the big Benzes down the road. And now people are literally, it's literally saving people's lives. And, and our industry and our product has that same effect, but we're putting so much barrier for that opportunity to happen. Where unfortunately, I'm just the manufacturer, right? I'm just the manufacturer that gets a product installed. And then I am married to that client for 15 years, but you were in the house for 15, 20, 45 minutes and you're in and out. There needs to be a better balanced approach on what customer service really looks like and how we can actually provide an end result for the consumer. Because at the end of the day, you're a homeowner, you're a consumer, you're a family man, you deserve that right. Why is the industry taking that away from you? You've kind of got to look yourself in the mirror a little bit sometimes. Mic drop right there. 
Everett, for those who are unfamiliar with stores or WhatHub or Everett Brewer generally, how do you like to be found? Where do folks mostly most engage with you? Is it email? Uh, is it phone? Is it LinkedIn? How do you want to be found? Yeah, LinkedIn is really my my asset there. So you look me up at Everett Brewer. You can look up our companies as well. So LinkedIn is definitely the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, obviously, going to our websites and getting a hold of us on our 800 numbers, and they can get you directed. So storespower.com or wahub.com. Um, great yeah. outlets. Stores with a Z with for them. those who haven't, who yeah. haven't, we didn't mention it earlier. It's S-T-O-R-Z. Yep. S-T-O-R-Z power.com. Uh, and uh, that's the best way to get a hold of us. And we'll make sure that you get some love. We we love these opportunities and being able to you know bring more education to the industry as a whole. Um, yeah. We're looking forward to actually creating some podcasts uh, in, inclusive of, of great guys like yourself that are more focused in, in main industries. Yeah. Um, we had a great show at, uh, I'll, I'll kind of shout out SolarCon. I think that was the mm-hmm. first renewable energy platform that I've been to where it was truly focused on education of the industry as a whole. We had a ton of great outcome there. People reaching out on the, on LinkedIn and in our websites and 800 numbers and stating as like, I actually, I actually know how a battery works now. I've been doing this for six years and had no clue. We need to get that information down the end of the line. Sure. Yeah, I mean, what I'll what I'll comment there, and I appreciate that, is that you're specifically referring to the segment of the industry that needs some indoctrination, that is making a shit ton of money. Pardon my language, without having to know squat about how this technology works. And so, in yeah. that regard, I'm grateful for conferences like SolarCon that pull the sales guys out of the field and actually teach them what the hell they need to know. And it's yeah. not just watching, which they don't. Uh, by and large, uh, some, some video uh, course that they're supposed to go through before they go knock doors. Like they, yeah. you know, we all know what the statistics are on completing courses and that's how a lot of these guys are trained. And, and it's not to knock, there are plenty of companies that are doing great training in person. Don't get me wrong, but I hear you, man. Like, you know, I think that the work that is being done right now to educate the solar sales guys so that, so that they can more accurately reflect to the homeowner what's, what, what it is they're buying. I have people call me all the time, Everett my friends here in North Carolina and even in my buddy Kari in Georgia, he said, what's the deal with this offer? Like he showed me the proposal and it was an absolutely junk proposal. And, uh, and the sales guy couldn't answer any of his questions. And I just said, what's our industry coming to man? When I was 28 years old and started my first solar, 26 years old, started my first solar company. I went to Pacific gas and electrics, uh, energy center and learned every detail. I wrote the proposals myself. I knew exactly how to size a system. I knew exactly why the panels were the size they were. I knew all of those details. And it's not for lack of opportunity. Like Solar Energy International exists for a reason. NABCEP has a sales certification process so that these people can get the education they need. And you have to, you have to learn how to do all that to get those certifications. So I think like just requiring that our sales guys be certified is a right step and is a step in the right direction ever, to be honest. Yeah, we actually require that. So I'll, I'll, I'll actually show you the statistics. I'll, I'll tell you some quick statistics of knowing how that works. So here we are, a 10-year-old company. You know, We've got 20, tens of thousands of installations across America. And we require the sales guy to be certified and actually download our tool that's right there on their cell phone where they have to go through product and, and, uh, and sales certification for our product. The installers have to do both product and install certification. We're really strict on it. A lot, some guys push back on it like, hey, I guess you're just not the right guy for us. Yeah. But the statistics actually have proven that with those requirements, we get that less than 15 service calls a week. Yeah. We have had less than a dozen RMAs in 31 months. Wow. So you've got 
the other companies out there, the Solar Edges, the Teslas, where we talk about these three, five, seven day return calls on challenges and the information that the sales guy is selling in the home, which then translates to the installer installing a bad install, which then has the customer in, in experience having in, in proper expectations. Then all of a sudden the customers are fighting you back and suing your company. The statistics have shown that we can get down to the end, end result and create expertise at the end of the line. More people need to focus on that. Well, if you get nothing out of this conversation today, uh, but this but this one idea, if you're running a residential install company or even a training company, please require your team to be certified. Yeah. NAPSEP and Solar Energy International both have great programs. There are other programs. Uh, I think in-person training is is an excellent option, but it's not always available. Um, but but there are third-party val- validated verifiable services for certifying your sales guys so that they can read and understand a proposal, which is all too often uh, uncommon. Yeah, We will link to all of your credentials and every way the folks can reach out to you and also follow your companies uh, on our show notes. So make sure you go there. And if you aren't familiar with how to find that, and this is your first time listening to Suncast, then in a few minutes, we'll have an outro here where I'll, where I'll explain more. But Everett, as we sign off, let's end as we always do with what I call a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I'm going to say that we are going to have a little bit more harder times coming up abroad and that we need to prepare for those harder times from, because the supply chain alone being the manufacturing side, we're definitely seeing different components and, and uh, indicators of, I would, I don't want to use the full term of recession, but a partial recession to where people need to prepare. And so those of you guys that are sales guys that are living off of lavish incomes, to those that are actually a little bit more, you know, precautious with those things, cash is going to be king. Look at ways to find independence and look for security within your uh, businesses. This industry is going to levelize and we need to prepare for that. And so getting's getting good right now. Make sure that actually has prosperity beyond tomorrow. And that's mm-hmm. what I would state that I'm, I'm saying in my crystal ball is being prepared for. Wise words. From someone who has been in the trenches, Everett <laughs> Everett Brewer is the chief executive officer of Stores Power and the chief operating officer of Wathub, uh, a longtime industry player. And it has been a true joy to get to know you today. I look forward to the next time we get to hang out, Everett. Right, thanks, Nico. Appreciate you guys. Take care. Well, that's a wrap on today's practical insights into this Solar Warrior's pretty phenomenal journey. What did you learn? I'm curious if there is a particular story that stood out most to you. Maybe it was Everett's aha moment in construction that many of you have had as well. When you realize that you're making good money, but you really don't want to end up like the folks that you're surrounded with. And that's not to say anything about the construction guys generally. But I think if you listen to the episode, you understand where Everett was coming from and why he put in his two weeks notice. Or maybe you were impressed with his decision to jump into the alarm industry and how that ultimately led him to the solar industry or his prolific solar entrepreneur journey from development matching platforms to technology, lithium printing platforms. I am super impressed with this one solar warrior and I'm really glad that he was so generous with his time and I'm super glad that you were generous with your time as well as you've made it all the way through to the end of this episode. I'd like to ask you to tune in next week as we wrap up our Beyond O&M series. 
in partnership with Omnidian. That's on Monday and Tuesday. You don't want to miss those. It's two great episodes to wrap that series. And on Thursday, we'll hear from fellow Utah entrepreneur, Spencer Oberon, co-founder of everybody's favorite solar industry integration platform, Enerflow. And if you are eager to keep learning, well, you can head on over to mysuncast.com, my fellow Philomath. That's where you'll find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more. And hey, one more thing, just a reminder that maybe the single kindest thing that you could do is after having listened all the way through this episode, if you believe that it was full of value, would you leave us a five-star rating and enthusiastic review over on Apple Podcasts or give us a thumbs up. However else you can give kudos and accolades on the podcast platform that you listen to. It helps others filter out the noise and find value for themselves in Suncast, just like you have. Thank you to those of you who've already gone to rate this podcast.com forward slash suncast. Takes about three minutes and I'm super grateful for you considering it. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast makes it easy and fast for most of the main platforms, especially Apple Podcasts. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you could learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>